Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students, and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic and can be found on YJBM's website or PubMed for further reading. This episode is the second of two devoted to YJBM's March 2019 issue on attention science. I'm your co-host, Amelia Hallworth, a second-year graduate student in microbiology. Hi, and I'm your co-host, Huachi Li, a first-year student in MPH for the Chronic Disease Epi program. So, so far in this series, we have given you an overview of how attention affects us throughout our lives. Today, we will be interviewing and welcoming Dr. Thomas Brown to talk about his work researching and treating attention deficit disorder. This is a disorder that is best known for its effects in school children, but which continues to affect people long after they leave school. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Well, thanks very much. I'm very happy to be with you. Awesome. So could we start off with a little bit of an introduction, who you are, what do you do, what is your area of expertise? Sure. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. I uh, trained at, at Yale, got my PhD there. And then uh, was teaching at Yale uh, you know, initially in teaching uh, psychology at the Divinity School, and then uh, affiliated for, and stayed for about 25 years with the clinical faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at the Medical School. And uh, at the same time, I was running in New Haven, or actually in Hamden, a private clinic for attention and related disorders in children and adolescents and adults. And then just two years ago, uh, after my wife had died, I moved out to California uh, because uh, I had two grown kids and two grandkids out here. And I have now uh, opened my own clinic here in Manhattan Beach, California, and I'm teaching on the clinical faculty of the Keck Medical School at the University of Southern California. And my special interest is in attention deficit disorders, and particularly in high IQ uh, children and, and teens and adults who have ADHD, because I've found that very often people who are particularly smart and have ADHD don't get recognized as having that problem uh, as early as would most other people. And so as a result, they're often seen as, oh, you're so smart that you can just take care of this stuff. Uh, if you're having ADHD problems, you're just being lazy. And the fact is that uh, regardless of how smart you are, you can still have significant problems with ADHD, and it's not a problem with willpower. That's very cool. So how did you get into this research in the first place? What about it that you, do you find so fascinating? Well, what I found was that I got started this uh, a long time ago, and it, I was introduced actually uh, by a couple of adolescents that I saw both in the same week. Uh, they were really bright kids who had been going to public school and were not doing well at all compared to what their uh, impressive academic strengths were. And so now they were in private school and they were still not doing well. And there was just something about, it. I saw them on different days, they didn't know each other, but there was something about the way each one of them was able to explain to me how each day they would pass a resolution with themselves that they were really, this time they're gonna get on top of their work and they'd be going home with their backpacks and all of their books ready to do homework and just could not mobilize themselves to do it. And they spoke about the big difference between 
for them reading things that they were interested in and reading things that were assigned that were not very interesting to them. And there was something about the way each of them explained their experience with this that made me think, gee, you know, this sounds a little bit like ADHD. And it, that was at a time when not many people were talking about uh, ADHD without the hyperactivity. Uh, but it occurred to me, well, maybe we should try the medicine with them that we would normally use for the hyperactive kids and see how it works. And it happens we got lucky. And uh, they both responded very well to the medication treatment. Uh, teachers noticed the difference quite quickly. Parents noticed it. The, the kids themselves noticed it. And uh, then I began a series of conversations with them where I tried to learn more about what their experience was because they were telling me a, a lot about this uh, disorder and their experience with it that wasn't in the book. And it was not in the diagnostic criteria. At least some of the symptoms were not in the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. And that was at a time when not people, not many people were thinking about ADHD without hyperactivity. So one thing led to another. I eventually developed uh, some rating scales to assess for this and gave a few talks. And then one thing led to another. And uh, now here I am more than 30 years past that point. Uh, I've published about 30 articles and journals and have published uh, six books on this and have uh, been fortunate enough to be able to go around and, and give lectures in more than 43 countries to talk with people who are interested in uh, learning about ADHD. So uh, little did I know what I was getting into after those first two evaluations. That's really cool. So can you talk a little bit more about the symptoms that these two patients were showing that weren't typically uh, as part of the diagnostic criteria and how your work has expanded the model of ADHD and ADD that we have? Sure. Uh, I think that one of the main things that uh, that happened in my understanding of this as I got to know these patients and a lot of others uh, is that uh, the model that was operative when I first started in the field was pretty much uh, that this is a, a behavior problem of little boys. Uh, and sort of the, uh, the icon for it was Dennis the Menace, cartoon <laughs> character at the time. Uh, and you know, the emphasis was on hyperactive behavior. The assumption was if you had it when, you, uh, when you're little, it'd show up when you're about three, four, five years old. And then uh, when you got to be about 14, you'd outgrow it uh, and it would just go away. And what we've learned since is that this is something which affects uh, not just boys, but also girls. Uh, that often it does not show up in early childhood. Sometimes it does, but more often uh, you begin to see it when a kid gets into school and has to be working on an agenda that applies to a bunch of other people at the same time. Uh, and uh, that it's also something which is uh, often not tied into hyperactivity or impulsive behavior, uh, but rather to a wide range of cognitive functions uh, that we generally refer to as executive functions. The man it's basically the management system, the brain. And uh, that's something that we have gradually uh, begun to expand on. Uh, there are two of us who have been working separately on this uh, quite a bit, Russell Barkley and myself. Uh, and I think that we would both be willing to say at this point, and a number of other researchers I think would agree to us, that you can write an equation that says ADHD equals the developmental impairments of executive functions, which is simply to say that 
these cognitive functions, which uh, are so important in terms of managing daily life for all of us, which of course keep changing as we get older, uh, they exist only in primordial form in preschoolers, uh, but they keep developing over the course of, of uh, middle elementary school age and uh, are refined, uh, particularly you know, in, from the time of early puberty on, um, where there's a massive proliferation of cortical cells throughout the cortex, uh, which is followed by a period of pruning. Of to get more efficient circuits in the same way you'd prune a fruit tree in order to be able to get better fruit. And that process is not completed in most people until 18, 19, 20 years old, sometimes a bit beyond. And uh, studies that were done at the National Institute of Mental Health show that for those with ADHD, uh, the trajectory of their development of that cortical proliferation followed by uh, cortical pruning uh, is pretty much the same as it is for people who don't have ADHD, except for uh, a few areas, about five small regions, uh, most of them in the prefrontal cortex, uh, which on average, these are group data, of course, on average, uh, don't uh, catch up in those who have ADHD until about three years behind uh, the age at which you see this in most others of comparable age. And so it's a developmental impairment. And we've got very good evidence now from about 25 different uh, studies of uh, families, uh, particularly twin studies, uh, which indicate that it's an inherited problem, that it's something that runs in families. Uh, usually we use a heritability index that scores from zero to one uh, to talk about how much something like this is, is influenced by genes, where um, zero means not much at all, and one means it's pretty much the story. And uh, for comparison, breast cancer is about 0.3 on that scale, asthma is about 0.5, height is 0.9, and ADD is 0.76, based on about 25 uh, twin studies at this point. So it's a highly heritable problem, uh, and it's a problem uh, which is complex. It's not a simple matter of behavior problems. A lot of people who have it uh, have never had significant behavior problems, and even for those who have, Often that does go away, which is part of what the earlier theory was based on. Um, but it tends to get worse and get a little more problematic for people typically uh, as they meet the challenges of uh, going through school and particularly in adolescence uh, and in early adulthood when uh, one has to function more independently and not depend so much on other people around you to walk you step by step through what you need to do in each task from day to day. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's been a lot of very informative research going on. So could you tell us a little bit more about currently, what are some of the big questions in the field? Yeah, uh, I think probably one of the biggest ones is the role of emotions. The current diagnostic criteria for ADHD in the, di the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, includes no mention of emotion. Uh, in ADHD, that, that, that uh, expression and uh, modulation and management of emotions uh, is not even referred to. And those of us who do uh, research on this and uh, most anybody who knows anybody who has ADD or who has ADHD know that the fact is that for folks with ADHD, managing emotions is a big part of it. Uh, it makes a lot of difference in terms of how they respond to situations day by day, 
and how much they're able to follow through on things that need to be done. And so uh, the, the fact is, we many of us believe that those uh, those functions ought to be included in the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. And incidentally, I, I tend to use the terms ADD, ADHD interchangeably. Officially, it used to be that we'd use ADD to be talking about the kind without much hyperactivity or impulsivity and ADHD for the kind with, and then a few years back with uh, DSM-5, they decided they were gonna call it all ADHD. And so you now have this weird thing of ADHD comma, uh, you know, predominantly inattentive type, ADD without the hyperactivity. But uh, you know, many of us in just common conversation will use that, uh, you know, the ADHD, ADHD, uh, ADD and ADHD uh, interchangeably. So um, I've been starting to see more about this uh, emotional responses uh, just sort of in the general public and how people are talking about ADD and ADHD just as I'm interacting with the internet. Do we have any sense yet of whether those – the emotional dysregulation of whether it's linked to the attention in the brain or is it something else that's maybe causing both of them or are they completely unrelated? Well, they're very much related. Um, and I think that, that it's very clear when you take a look at the, the research uh, that emotion plays a powerful role in terms of working of memory and in motivation. Uh, because the, 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 for years uh, in psychology and psychiatry, uh, people tended to operate as though uh, emotion and cognition were two completely separate silos and that you could study one and then study the other, but that they were two very different things. And what we now know is that emotion uh, is, in fact, the energy level uh, that uh, shapes all information processing in the brain. And that that, that process... Uh, you know, of deciding sort of what, and I'm talking now, not simply about emotion in the sense of, of being uh, annoyed at somebody, uh, which is the way it's often taken, but rather uh, I'm talking about emotion, both in the sense of positive interest and uh, the kind of thing where, where one um, has a repugnance to do something or wants to get uh, more distance from it and so forth that, uh, there's a guy named uh, Ken Dodge, neuroscientist, uh, who some years back uh, addressed this issue. And he said, you know, all information processing is emotional. The emotions, the energy level that drives and organizes and amplifies and attenuates uh, cognitive activity. And I think that's something that, that operates in, in amazing ways. Uh, and there's been research since Joe Ledeau's book on uh, the emotional brain and, uh, you know, subsequent research uh, that's been published about the neuroscience involved. Uh, it's very clear uh, that, you know, our memories are uh, very much informed by uh, the affective significance, the emotional significance uh, of whatever it is that we're trying to remember. You know that uh, there's some things that that you know carry a, a, a strong charge of of interest and energy, 
and others uh, of fearfulness and wanting to avoid, and others of disgust, of just not wanting to be involved, and often very conflicting uh, emotions. Uh, these things don't come in purity usually. It, it's uh, often a mixture of multiple levels of emotion. And I think one of the important things to recognize about it is that these things operate uh, unconsciously, not in the uh, psychoanalytic sense of unconscious as in repressed, but rather uh, in the more modern sense of automaticity, that these are processes that go on uh, so quickly, so automatically, uh, that we're not consciously aware of it, and often uh, we're not even aware of what's happening until after we see the output. You know, and that, that has to do with uh, how we prioritize things, what things we decide we're going to get into, and what things we're going to be backing off of, and what things we're afraid to get started with, and uh, the degree to which we want it to uh, care about and engage ourselves in, in a variety of activities. So I think that, you know, looking at the, the role of emotions, uh, particularly unconscious emotions, which are obviously very difficult to, to track because that stuff is not only is, is, is the main thing is it's so fast. It's like if you're a basketball, say take a typical professional basketball player who's driving in to make a layup shot. That basketball player is not thinking, okay, now I move my left foot, now I move my right foot, now I drop my left shoulder, now I'm gonna spin him, and now I've gotta get around this guy that's uh, defending the basket. Uh, all of that's done seamlessly. You know, and another example would be, for example, we talk often about ADHD. My first book on this uh, was published by Yale, Yale University Press uh, back in 2005. And the subtitle of that book uh, was, uh, the title was Attention Deficit Disorders, but the subtitle was, uh, the unfocused mind in children and adults. And uh, I think that, that what we're uh, increasingly recognized is the degree to which these are unconscious processes. In uh, one example, for example, would be, uh, if you think about your driving, uh, the kind of focus that's involved in that, it's not like you glue your eyes to the bumper of the car in front of you. You're watching what they're doing, but you're also looking down the street and noticing that the stoplight is changing from green to red, and you've got to get your foot off the accelerator and moved over toward the brake. You're also checking your side view mirrors and your rear view mirrors so you can see somebody who's coming up too fast on you, and you're noticing that there's some guy opening his car door way out into your lane, and you're going to have to pull over a little bit to avoid taking his door off uh, as you go by. You're noticing that there's a truck backing out of a driveway and you've got to slow down and see if they're going to be how fast they're coming out. Meanwhile, there are a couple of pedestrians running across the street to catch a bus, and you're going to have to shift over to the left lane because you've got to make a left turn down at the next corner. And while you're doing all that, you're having to ignore some things that you see. So, you know, the cops have picked up somebody over on the side of the street, and you're kind of curious about who they've got and what, what they did. And there's an interesting display on the front of a store as you're going by, but you have to ignore some things. And then you've got to keep in mind what you just saw in the mirror and what you just saw ahead and integrate this information uh, as uh, you're going through the process of driving the car. And that's the kind of focus that we're talking about. When we talk about ADHD, it's not the lock on to, to uh, some particular spot 
uh, as you might think about doing when you're focusing a, a, a still camera to take a picture. It is more like focus on your driving where you have to be simultaneously ignoring some things, uh, keeping in mind some others, shifting your focus as you're moving along the street, and at the same time, staying in contact with what your goal is. You know, maybe you're on, you're on your way to the grocery store, and while you're doing that, you're also perhaps thinking about what you need to pick up when you get to the grocery store. It's that kind of complexity of focus uh, that we do in everything from, you know, getting ourselves dressed in the morning, uh, sorting our mail, uh, preparing a meal, carrying on a conversation. And if you're having trouble with these functions, if you don't have the ability to manage that kind of, of complex focus, it makes a lot of trouble for you, whether you're a first grader who's sitting at a desk at school trying to learn what's going on or whether you're trying to read, you know, and keep in mind what you've just read in the last paragraph as you get into the next paragraph, or you're trying to carry on a conversation with people or playing a sport, you know, or writing a paper. You know, so it's these uh, functions are, that are involved in ADHD are uh, complex. And uh, the model that I've developed in my work, uh, basically from uh, talking with a lot of patients of different ages, you know, it's not just working out of the neuroscience research. I'm a clinician. I see patients five and a half days a week when I'm in town. And uh, it's by talking with these people and listening carefully to what they're telling me that I've been able to develop a model that uh, seems to work in terms of explaining a lot of, of what the uh, executive functions look like in day-to-day -day operations. Uh, this is not the only model. There are other models that have been put out by Dr. Barkley and by a number of uh, neuropsychologists, but uh, the model that, that I've come up with has in it six clusters. Um, and you know, the first is activation, being able to get organized and get started and prioritizing tasks so you can see what you're going to spend your time and effort on. Uh, the second is focus, uh, which means focusing and then sustaining your focus when you need to and then shifting your attention to other tasks. And then the third cluster is effort, being able to regulate alertness. Many times people with ADHD have a lot of difficulties in getting to sleep. And what they'll tell you is I often stay up a lot later than I really want to or should because I found if I try to go to bed to, to get to sleep before I'm really, really, really tired, I can't shut my head off. I just keep thinking of stuff. So I'll stay up late reading or watching TV or surfing the net until I'm exhausted. Then I fall asleep fine. But once I fall asleep, then they'll say, uh, I tend to sleep like a dead person. I have a hard time resurrecting myself in the morning when the alarm clock goes off. And if there's not somebody else around to uh, urge me to get out of bed, I'm very likely to sleep through whatever it is I was planning to do. And then related to that also is processing speed, uh, which refers to the, well, let me give you an example. Uh, there are some people who have ADHD who have really quite slow processing speed in spite of the fact that they're very, very bright. And what, it's sort of like having a slow modem. Sorry, so uh, what do you mean by processing speed? I'm, well, let me give you an example of it. The processing speed is involved when you're trying to write a paper uh, and you're trying to uh, take ideas that you have in your head and put them into sentences and paragraphs. And there's some people with ADHD who will tell you that they have really good ideas. And he give you the examples of them. 
really good ideas about what they want to write, but it takes them half a forever to get the sentences formulated uh, and get the paragraphs put together and, and then be able to move through that to be able to uh, develop the paper. Now, one of the things you can see from this example is processing speed then is also going to be linked to that first category of activation and prioritizing because you've got to organize how this sentence fits with the previous one and with what you're projecting to, to say next. So processing speed on uh, IQ tests like the Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale or the Wexler uh, Intelligence Scale for kids, both have an index score for processing speed. And that's measured very simply in you know, how, how quickly you can do a, a string of codes uh, that you have as a sample. Um, and there, you know, there also are, are, you know, some other related measures that can be done. Uh, and that's physically cranking out the, the items. And you can find in two minutes that many people with ADHD are going to be quite a bit slower being able to do even very simple processing tasks like that. Uh, one is scan and is, uh, they, they'll show you uh, small, uh, very simple shapes. And there are two of them in the first column, and then there are five of them in, uh, next to it in, in the, the remaining column. And so as you go along with each of these rows, uh, you're asked to mark, is one of these five exactly the same as one of the first two in the initial column? And uh, in two minutes, you get certain it's time limited. And uh, we find that with that task and with the coding where you're substituting symbols for numbers, uh, and where they're directly at the top of the page, those two simple measures, which each of which can be completed in two minutes, often will you know, give you uh, a signal with somebody who has slow processing speed that might also be manifest in how long it takes them to write an email, how long it takes them to write a book report or social studies report when they're in uh, fifth, sixth grade, and how long it takes them to turn out uh, essays and, and term papers. Huh. So I would have assumed that people with ADHD, ADD and ADHD, particularly the people who are exhibiting hyperactivity, are processing the world faster, and that's why they're hyperactive. Are there any other common misconceptions about the disease that you hear? Oh, there are a lot of them. Uh, I think the biggest uh, misconception, actually, if I could just take a second, I'd like to just mention the other three. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Go for it. The, the model that I've got. I mentioned activation and focus and effort. Uh, the fourth cluster in that model is managing frustration and modulating emotions, uh, which is a, a topic I'll talk a little more about shortly. Uh, the next one is memory, uh, but it has to do with utilizing working memory and accessing recall. What I mean by that is if you ask people who have ADD, how's your memory? Often they'll say, oh, I've got the best memory in my family. I can remember stuff nobody else can remember. And they give you some example about some movie they saw seven years ago, and they've seen it only once, but can tell you every detail, the entire storyline of the movie that they saw seven years ago. haven't seen it since that time. Or somebody else may say, oh, yeah, I went to Super Bowl two years ago. I can still describe for almost every play they ran during that game. Someone else might say, well, I've got in my head 450 songs that were popular back in the 70s, all the music, all the lyrics, all the verses. But even though they might be really good at remembering stuff like that from a long time ago, if you ask them about something that happened just a couple of minutes ago or yesterday, often they can't tell you. 
The problem with memory with ADD is not usually long-term storage memory. It's short-term working memory. It's what you depend on, for example, if you call the telephone information number, you get a phone number, and you have to hold it in your head while you dial it because you've got nothing to write it down with. Often for people with ADD, that's difficult. They start transposing the digits. Or you go to the other room to get something, and then you stand there scratching your head wondering what the hell you came in here for. Or you're working on a project. You go downstairs, get something you need for the project, see something else that's interesting or something else that needs doing. Soon you're up to your elbows in project number two, having totally forgotten you're in the middle of project number one upstairs. So it's kind of important to get it done. <laughs> Students complain. They'll study for a test the night before the test. They'll go over it. Somebody can quiz them. They've got it. They go into class the next day thinking they're going to get a good grade in this. And all of a sudden, a big chunk of what they knew the night before has evaporated. Can't pull it out of their head when they need it. But then a few hours, a few days later, something jogs their memories all back again. It's not that they didn't have it. It's that they couldn't retrieve it when they needed to. And the working memory is, is, is really the search engine for the brain. You know, it's the kind of thing where you're getting ready to go someplace. You think of five things you need to take with you. Half an hour later, you're walking out there or you got one of them. You can't remember the other four to save your life. It's where you have to hold one thing in mind while you're doing something else. And that's a key element of, of the difficulties that many people with ADHD have regardless of their age. And then finally, uh, there's a sixth cluster, and that refers to action. And that's the fact that many times people with ADD are going too slow when they need to speed up or too fast when they need to slow down. And often they have difficulties in being able to size up situations uh, so they can sort of read the situation and, and figure out sort of, you know, when they're, uh, you know, losing people's interest and mm. or when they're annoying people or <laughs> people... Uh, they're engaged in conversation with uh, are, are getting bored or annoyed or, or whatever. So th those six clusters are uh, the elements of the model that I've developed and have, have written on quite a bit. Um, and basically from not just neuroscience research, but from a lot of conversations with a lot of people of various ages who have ADHD. And I, what I would say about them is that for the most part, they work unconsciously in the sense of automaticity, and that most of the things that we have to do, like driving or cooking a meal, do not involve just one of these, but they involve dynamic interaction between them in order to get things done. And then the other thing is that these cognitive functions that we're calling executive functions, uh, for most people, are not fully matured until they get into about 20, 22 years of, old, of age. Mm-hmm. So in the vein of social interactions, could you address some of the existing stigmas, if any, are associated with ADD and ADHD, and how to maybe educate the community against them? You're talking about myths that people have about it. Mm -hmm. Just yeah, people, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest myth uh, is that this is essentially a problem of willpower. And uh, let me talk about that with what I... Uh, refer to often as, as the central mystery of ADHD. And that's simply this. Uh, I've seen a couple of thousand people with ADHD at various ages. Every one of them has a few specific activities in which they're able to exercise their executive functions quite well, at least as well as most people, in some cases much better than most others of the same age. Uh, even though on almost everything else they do, they have a great deal of difficulty in exercising those same executive functions. Let me give you an example. High school kid, 16-year-old boy, 
uh, was brought to my office, my clinic uh, by his parents. And he was the goaltender for his school's ice hockey team. And it just happened that the team had won the state championship in ice hockey the day before. And so as we sat down to talk together, the parents were uh, basically bragging a little bit about how great he was in the tournament. Uh, the, apparently he was an extraordinarily good goalie. They said when he's in the net playing hockey, he missed nothing. He knew where the puck was every second of a fast game, totally on top of the kind of goalie every team wants. Smart kid, tested way high up in the, in, in the superior range, wanted to get good grades, was hoping to go to medical school, but he was always in trouble with his teachers. And what they'd say to him is, you know, once in a while, you'll say something that shows how smart you are. We'll be talking about something, you'll come in with some comment that's really very impressive and perceptive. But most of the time, you're out to lunch, you're looking out the window, you're staring at the ceiling, you look like you're half asleep half the time, you don't even know which we're on. And the question I kept asking him was, if you can pay attention so well when you're playing hockey, how come you can't pay attention when you sit in class? Or here's another example. A lot of times parents will bring in kids for us to see and they say, no, the teacher says this kid can't pay attention for more than five minutes. We know that's not true. We've watched her play video games. She can sit and play those video games for three hours at a time and not move. The teacher says she's easily distracted. That's nonsense. When she's playing those games, she is locked on that screen like a laser. And the only way you're going to get her attention is to jump in her face or turn off the TV. So it's, you know, it looks as though it's, it's simply a matter of willpower. Now, it's not always sports or video games. There's some people with ADD, they're not good at that stuff. They might be into art. And they're sketching and drawing and really getting into it for hours at a time. Somebody else, when they're little, they're creating engineering marvels with Lego blocks. And then when they're older, they're taking car engines apart and putting them back together, designing computer networks. But everybody I've ever seen who has ADD has a few things they can do where they have no trouble paying attention. Even though in almost everything else, they've got a lot of trouble paying attention. And if you ask them about it, you say, what's with this? How come you can do it here and you can't do it there? Usually what they'll say is, it's easy. If it's something I'm interested in, I can pay attention. If not, I can't. And most people hear that and they say, yeah, right, congratulations. That's true for anybody. Anybody's going to pay attention better for something they're interested in than for something they're not, which, which they're not interested in, which is certainly true. But here's the difference. People who don't have ADD, if they've got something they've got to do and they know they've got to do it and it's important, they can usually make themselves pay attention, even if it's pretty boring, just because they know they got to do it. People with ADD, it is incredibly difficult for them to be able to make themselves pay attention unless the task is something that's really interesting to them. Uh, not because somebody said to them, hey, you should pay attention to this because it's going to get you a better grades or a better job review or whatever, but just because it is interesting for whatever reasons. Or if they feel they have a gun to their head and it's something they think of as very unpleasant, is going to be happening very quickly if they don't take care of this right here, right now. Under those two conditions, you know, no problem. Anything else, a lot of problems. But under those two conditions, it changes the chemistry of the brain instantly. And the problem is it is not under voluntary control. That's where the problem is. I think ADHD is not a willpower thing. There's something about the way people perceive things that if it's interesting to them for whatever reasons, uh, then they can usually get into it quite well. And anybody I ever see for evaluation of ADHD, I'll ask about what things they can focus on well, and they've all got a list. Sometimes it's a sport. You know, sometimes it's making art. Sometimes it's making music. Sometimes it's reading. Although there's actually something interesting about the reading. That often, uh, I had another student one time who said to me, uh, you know, when they make an assignment for things to read for the, this cor these courses that I'm taking, 
if it's something that it really is interesting to me, if it gets my interest, I can read it. And usually you may have to slow down sometimes, but you know, usually I can remember pretty well what I've just read. But he said, if it's something that's just boring to me that I don't have any real interest in, you know, and I go to read it, I'll find that often I've got to go back and read it again and again because it just doesn't stick inside my head. I know what the words mean. It's not that uh, I don't know the vocabulary, but it's just I, it, I, my head doesn't process it. It's, it's, it's like I'm licking the words and I'm not chewing them. And he's trying to talk here about what I would call the engagement of attention in order to be able to convert what's being seen uh, into working memory so that it can eventually be processed into longer term memory. And I think if you talk with people who have ADHD and you make that distinction between reading something that they're really interested in and reading something that is just really boring to them, that, that has no interest, that you'll find that distinction, that when it's something they don't have special interest in it, that they find themselves often having to go back and reread it repeatedly in order to get it encoded in working memory so they can hang on to it. So I have a friend actually who was diagnosed with ADHD as a child. Um, and one of the strategies that he used for classwork uh, was to try and find something about it that was interesting. Uh, so mm -hmm. that way he could focus on it. Is that, yeah. is that something you guys use in, like in the clinic? Is that something you'd recommend to sometimes, people? Sometimes that will work. Sometimes, uh, you know, the people, you know, like college students will, often will get engaged in sort of writing comments as they take their notes that are counter arguments to the arguments that are being presented by the speaker. Uh, sometimes they'll, they'll draw a little sketch out, little things. Being able to write things when you're listening is important in being able to get it down. Uh, but there again, short-term memory is a problem with a lot of these folks. And that some of them, if they go to a lecture and the instructor is speaking too fast, or if it's in a language where the professor's first language is not the language in, in which the person is listening, that they're most comfortable with, that often they start losing a lot of what is being said and if they go to stop to write something down and take notes on a particular concept or phrase, that then they lose what else is, is being said over the next couple of minutes, which makes it very complicated. Mm. So then for less publicly recognized symptoms, such as emotional regulation and sleep problems, how well do existing treatments help with those? Well, the, the fact is that... Uh, the, the, the nice thing about ADHD is that we do have medications that actually help a lot of the people with ADHD. The, and we've got a lot of studies that demonstrate that for about eight out of 10 people who have ADHD, if you give them the right amount of the right medicine, uh, it's helpful to them. Mm. Now, it's important to be clear about this. The meditations we have for ADHD cure nothing. It's not like you have a strep throat, you take an antibiotic and it knocks out the infection. It's much more like eyeglasses. I have a problem with my eyes. I can't read typewriter size print without my glasses. If I put my glasses on, I can read it about as well as anybody can. Take them off, I'm right back where I started. The glasses do not fix my eyes. They just help me see when I've got them on. And in the same way, the medicines we use for treating ADHD do not cure ADHD at all. 
but for eight out of 10 people, it significantly improves it. Now, for some people, it's huge how much the medicines work for them. Others, it's substantial, but it's not huge. Others, it helps a little, but not that much. And two out of 10, it doesn't do a damn thing. You know, but the, the fact is that these medicines are very helpful for a lot of people, uh, you know, if they get them. But one thing that, that's important, and a lot of prescribers do not know about this either, the fact is that many physicians, uh, with po possible exception of pediatricians, but many physicians have almost no training in how to recognize ADHD, in the sense that we recognize it these days. Uh, or in how to work with the stimulant medicines uh, that we use to treat it. Because what's unique about these medicines is that unlike many other medicines, although not all medicines, um, where you adjust the dose for the medication according to how old the person is or how much they weigh or how severe their symptoms are, which is referred to as sort of the mig per kig uh, approach to, to prescribing. And for many medicines that works quite well. But for the stimulants, it doesn't. For example, in our clinic, we see little kids, you know, two, three, four, five years old. Uh, we you know, elementary school kids, high school kids, college and university students and adults. Our youngest patient at the moment is three. Our oldest patient is 79. You know, and most of the little kids are taking very small doses of the stimulant medicines that we use. Uh, you know, those would be the medicines. The ones that the brand names people recognize would be uh, like Ritalin. Ritalin is just a brand name for methylphenidate, the same way Bayer is a brand name for aspirin. But we've now got a number of other medicines of that type. And then the uh, we've had those since we've had uh, methylphenidate since 1956. And then we also have the amphetamines, uh, which we've had much longer. That the, the first amphetamines were developed in 1937. Um, and the ones that people recognize, the names uh, are like Adderall and uh, Vyvanse and Dexedrine and Mideus. Those are some of the other, you know, but there, there are all kinds of different delivery systems we've got. But uh, with the population that we see, which across the lifespan, most of the little kids are taking very small doses. But there are a few of them, not many, but a few, where we've got to go up into the almost into the adult dosing range to touch them because their bodies are not that sensitive to it. And if we give them that level of dosing for those exceptional kids, they respond to it quite well when the lower doses that you'd usually give for kids of similar age um, don't do anything. Uh, on the other hand, though, among the adults we see here, uh, there some of them who are uh, taller and fatter than I am, and I'm not skinny, uh, you know, they're taking the effective dose for them is no more than you'd give a typical five-year-old. You know, so the dosing doesn't go by age or weight or symptom severity. It's how sensitive is your body to it. Are there any markers we can use to predict how sensitive you're going to be or how well you'd respond to them? Because uh, you mentioned that people will respond, uh, some people will respond better than others. Yeah, well, some people respond better than others uh, just because of their total sensitivity to stimulants. Uh, and some respond better to one type of stimulant than another. Uh, the, the main thing is that, well, first of all, let me just say a little bit about the mechanism of action. Uh, the way stimulant medications work uh, is quite simple. Uh, they slow the reuptake of dopamine 
uh, in those neural networks that are operating on dopamine, which happen to be most of the neural networks that are involved in executive functions are dopaminergic networks. And so what that means is that, that um, think about the action, you sort of picture the synapse and you've got uh, you know, an action potential coming, coming along the, the uh, axon and comes down to the, to the end of the synapse the, uh, pre, on the presynaptic side. Uh, then what it's gonna do is cause the release of micro dots of the neurotransmitter, in this case, dopamine, uh, which will cr uh, cross the uh, synapse like a, a spark plug and hit receptor buttons on the other side. And if you have enough of the, uh, those micro dots of the transmitter chemical coming across fast uh, and hit, hit enough receptors, uh, you're gonna get a good signal. Uh, if you don't, it's just gonna fizzle. Now, the other piece of that is that on the presynaptic side of the synapse, you've also got uh, protein cells that are, are uh, trans referred to as transporters. And their job is to work like little vacuum cleaners so that when they, uh, on the, from, the, from the presynaptic side, when you get the release of the neurotransmitter chemical, uh, fractions of a second later, they go and suck it back and, and clear it out of the synapse. If you didn't have that, you'd never be able to get anything else done. But these are processes that happen so fast that there's no time to, uh, you know, to think about it. It's all done unconsciously. And we're talking about you know, tiny, tiny neurons. And uh, the fact is that the speed at which these communications take place is amazing. That in one thousandth of a second, you can get 12 messages across. You know, and uh, so we're talking about a process that works rapidly and a process that uh, is you know, not involving one lonely little neuron, which is what you usually see in diagrams and textbooks, but rather uh, we now you know, know a lot more about how these things travel in cascades. The fact is that you've got to get, in order to get messages through, you've got to get it across, hit the receptors, sit on the receptors fractions of a second long, long enough to be able to get the, the action potential across, and then it has to be the uh, transporters, uh, have to suck it back in. Now, the mechanism of action for stimulant medications, uh, both methylphenidate and amphetamine have one, in, one uh, mechanism in common. They slow that reuptake uh, back into the presynaptic side, just by fractions of a second, but long enough that it'll sit there and get the message across. And the, the difference between the two between methylphenidate and amphetamine is that the amphetamine tends also to release somewhat increased uh, amounts of the transporter uh, chemical itself from the presynaptic side. So the way that works is if you happen to be somebody who isn't getting enough of it released in the first place, and then you slow the reuptake, it's not going to do very much of anything because you just didn't have enough of it out there to begin with to, get the really, to really get the signal across. On the other hand, these are very sensitive mechanisms. And if you've already got enough of it out there and they start throwing more out there, you're likely to jam the system because it's an inverted U-curve. 
yeah, this has been written about very nicely by Amy Arnston, actually, who's uh, still on the Yale faculty at the medical school and has uh, just you know, very well described it. So those are the uh, two medicines that we have. And it's, it's something where you can't tell, people don't come with labels on their forehead saying, I'm somebody who's gonna work, respond better to amphetamine or I'm somebody who responds better to methylphenidate. Uh, basically you pick one, try it, see how it works. And if that doesn't work, you try the other one. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, previously the trainings of pa- pediatricians and other uh, caretakers of young adults. And in one of your articles, you described why young adults with ADHD are often, uh, when they're no longer in the care of their provider, do not get the help that they need. So do you have some suggestions on how these patients could be provided with more adequate care? Yeah, well, the problem is this, that if you have ADHD, usually it's, uh, when you're a kid, usually you're going to be treated by a pediatrician. And some of the pediatricians are really quite sophisticated about this and quite good at being able to monitor medications and to uh, work it out and to see that people get uh, adequate diagnoses and, and evaluations. Um, some not. And the problem then is that if you've had a pediatrician who's been helpful to you, then you go off to college or university, uh, you may have difficulty in getting uh, somebody there who'd be willing to refill your prescription. And these are Schedule II drugs. And there are some good reasons why many physicians uh, and many university clinics do not like to be dispensing Schedule II meds because they know very well that there are some people who get them and sell them or share them uh, for people who don't, in fact, have ADHD. But uh, they're just hoping to be able to allow themselves to stay up for a couple of all-nighters to make up for the work they should have done the previous three weeks, uh, or uh, think that uh, it's going to give them a a leg up in terms of being able to pass a test, even though the medicine doesn't put any information in your head that's not already there. Um, But as a result, uh, university clinics around the country uh, usually will not start uh, students on uh, stimulant medications uh, they usually ask them to get an evaluation elsewhere and then uh, get started. And then some, some universities will, will then refill the prescriptions once the diagnosis has been made and trial of medication has been successfully completed. Uh, but there are some schools where they're reluctant to, to do that and just let people ask people to get this taken care of privately because they're afraid they're going to be putting too much in the way of, of stimulant medication out on campus in a way that's going to cause problems. And so it's very important, I think, for a person to, who has ADHD, who's going off to, to college, uh, if they're going to be far enough away from their primary care doctor, the, the pediatrician who's been prescribing for them, there are two ways it gets done. One is that uh, sometimes they'll make arrangements uh, for their primary care doc to continue to write the medication for them and to monitor it with them. And they'll stop in and see them maybe once every three or four months uh, when they're home on a vacation or something, and then have the the prescription picked up by their parents or some other family member and then have them uh, sent to them at the university. That's that's one way of doing it. And the other way is simply to try to uh, find a a clinician in the community uh, where the school is uh, who'll be willing to evaluate them and then uh, prescribe for them the medication that they need. 
but uh, that's not an easy thing to do. And a lot of students are, you know, a little bit wary of how do I go about finding somebody? And uh, they'll hear about that they've got uh, friends who have tried and have not had a lot of luck in finding somebody who really knows what they're doing with these medicines or who's not afraid that they're going to uh, be getting in trouble for writing too many prescriptions for stimulants. Yeah, it sounds like neither of those are ideal situations. Is that situation getting any better or worse or about the same? Well, it, for over 20 years, I've taught the courses at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association about ADHD. And, and um, I often would talk with the psychiatrists who are t- paying extra money to take these courses uh, at the convention and ask them, how much time uh, did you have when you were in medical school and or your residency and fellowships, uh, learning about ADHD. And the average uh, amount of time ranged from zero to 20 minutes. You know, maybe a portion of a lecture about child's, uh, you know, psychiatry. Uh, But many of them just have not gotten much information. Now, you know, a lot of us are working pretty hard to try and get the word out uh, and to help to provide information that uh, accurate science-based information that will be a basis for clinicians to uh, take on this sort of thing. But the fact is that, that uh, there's still a lot of doctors out there who just have not gotten, um, you know, you know, adequate help in being able to appreciate the complexity of this disorder uh, or uh, learn to feel comfortable in, in doing the, the prescribing for it. So thank you so much for sharing all your expertise today. Do you have any practical advice to end off with for our listeners, especially for young aspiring researchers? I guess what what I would say is I have found that for me at least, um, doing research which which combines clinical research with neuroscience uh, is fascinating. You know, there's so much that we're still learning about the brain. Many mysteries yet remain Mm -hmm. to be solved. Um, but I also think that it makes it far more interesting, at least to me, uh, to be connecting that to what I can learn about these things, uh, not just from uh, looking at people's brains through uh, functional MRI or, or uh, you know, DTI, diffusion tensor imaging, uh, or other techniques that are looking at them, but by actually engaging in conversation with them. When I started at Yale, the psychiatry department was dominated by psychoanalysts. And um, so one of the things that taught me was to learn how to listen carefully to people. Some of the theory wasn't all that good, but uh, those clinical skills are important. And so I I really think that if you can be working in a field of of, uh, research, which involves other people, if it's something where you can learn about it from talking with people who have these problems, that's a particularly rich mine uh, in which to be operating. Well, thank you so much for being here and uh, having us interview you, Dr. Brown. It's been really great. Thanks, Amelia. I appreciate the opportunity. It's a delight to to be reconnected with Yale in this way, even as as indirect as it is. (laughs) And uh, I think the work that you're doing in the journal and putting out information uh, of the wide variety of things that you do is something that's a very valuable contribution. Thank you. Uh, Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks for turning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us in two months for our coverage of the June 2019 Clocks and Cycles issue. 
So thank you to the School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. And thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially the editors editors-in-chief, Helen and Fatima, and the deputy editors for this issue, Kavita and Patrice. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.edu, sorry, medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcast. See you in two months for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.